welcome to episode 63 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. In May 2023, Pluto published Queer Footprints, a guide to uncovering London's fierce history by Dan Glass. The book is a groundbreaking guide that takes you through the city streets to uncover the scandalous, hilarious and empowering events of London's queerstery. Accompanied by a chorus of voices of both iconic and unsung legends of the movement, readers can dip into beautifully illustrated maps and extraordinary tales of LGBTQIA+, solidarity, protest and pride, where the shadows of gentrification, policing, homophobia and racism are time and again resisted. Last time on the show, we spoke to Jeremy Seabrook about his memoir, Private Worlds, Growing Up Gay in Postwar Britain. And it felt only right to follow up that episode with one that sort of picks up chronologically and thematically where it left off. To that end, it's my real pleasure to welcome Dan Glass onto the show today, along with Josh Rivers. Josh is the creator and host of the award-winning Busy Being Black podcast and head of cultural partnerships at UK Black Pride, the world's largest pride celebration for LGBTQIA plus people of African, Asian, Caribbean, Latin American and Middle Eastern descent. We'll be discussing the connections and solidarity that's existed over the years between queer, feminist, anti-racist and labour movements. We're also going to talk about the enduring psychic legacy of the British Empire and colonialism and how we metabolise grief with a particular reference to the AIDS crisis. We discuss the exciting work that's being done now by UK Black Pride, as well as the process of researching, writing and editing Queer Footprints, and much more besides. Before we begin, a reminder to listeners that Queer Footprints and a selection of other relevant books are 40% off for the next month through plutobooks.com. If you just go to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading, you can browse the full list and then just use the coupon podcast at the checkout. Finally, if you're a fan of the show, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button, rate us, and share the link online. Okay, without any further ado then, here are Dan Glass and Josh Rivers on Radicals in Conversation. Dan, Josh, it's a real, real pleasure to be here on the call with you today. We've been, I don't know, I've heard it described as like a rock and roll promise, the idea that we're going to do something together you know, it's been promised and yet it sort of hasn't materialized yet. And I feel like we've had something a bit like that with Josh for many years where we've talked about having some sort of collaboration between Busy Being Black and Radicals in Conversation. And uh, it's lovely to finally have you on the call here. Feels like that's sort of been achieved. So that's really amazing. And of course, we're here as well with Dan Glass, author of Queer Footprints, A Guide to Uncovering London's Fierce History. People familiar with Pluto may recall Rebel Footprints, a book that came out from David Rosenberg a few years ago, sort of in that vein. But yeah, looking at the history of London, uh, particularly sort of through a queer lens, I suppose. And it's a yeah, really exceptional book. So lots to talk about uh, from that today. So firstly, welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. So glad to be here. How are you both doing today? Yeah, I'm really, really excited. You're going to have to contain me. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, let's start with some, I guess, basics. Uh, just introduce yourselves for us. Um, what's your kind of background, political background? How have, how have you both come to be on this call today, I suppose? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us. I'm really excited. Josh and me have been chatting for a while now, really throughout the, throughout the whole book process. And it's been, Josh, you have been such an inspiration. I could just listen to you 
forever. Even when we had that chat and you were explaining all your tattoos, they each have such deep, liberating spiritual symbolism. And God, we could just have a conversation about your tats. But also, I guess the other thing I'm excited about is that we're both massive book nerds. Obviously, the, the process of writing Queer Footprints was, I really enjoyed it because it was an opportunity to just read and read and read and read and read. And only a tiny percentage of that research actually came into the final edit of the book. And, and so, yeah, Josh and me have got a lot of overlapping and similar inspirations when it comes to our activist and our writing icons. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the chat. And in terms of who am I, I'm a LGBT QIA plus and HIV activist predominantly. I'm not a writer by trade and, and I was lucky to learn the craft from various friends throughout this book. And for me, the journey from being at the barricades to writing was being able to take a step back and zoom out and look at the wider movement and our incredible history or history, as I like to say in the book, Take a step back, write this, and I'm really proud of it. And now I'm looking forward to get back to the barricades. Mm, brilliant, yeah. And Josh, how about yourself? So I'm Josh Rivers. I, I'm going to call myself an enchantress. I was talking to someone the other day about how we introduce ourselves, right? We always get that question, what do you do? And no one likes that question. And so my friend who works in kind of branding for entrepreneurs was like, well, you have to find a new way of answering that question in a way that lights you up. And because I'm someone who follows enchantment and who pursues it, i.e. with Dan and, and Queer Footprints and with Pluto, and that's the kind of space I try to create for other people in the world as well, for them to be lit up and enchanted, I thought I'm going to start calling myself an enchantress. And I do that through my podcast, Busy Being Black, where I have conversations with predominantly queer black people from across the world about politics, art, activism, theory, and how we show up as queer black people more fully, more enchantedly, and with more joy. I'm also the head of cultural partnerships at UK Black Pride, which is a new role for me. I've for the past four years, I've been the head of communications. And for those who don't know, UK Black Pride is now the world's largest free Black Pride celebration. So we're very proud to do the work that we do in creating spaces for queer Black and Brown communities to show up and celebrate our unique cultures and lived experiences. And I just have to say that I'm such a huge fan of yours, Dan. We've spent so much time together over the past couple of years, whether we're working for the Gay Liberation Front together and now navigating the, the machinations and politics of community organizing in that way, or supporting each other in our various endeavors to make a difference in the world. I'm such a, a huge fan of yours and have been really honored to play whatever small role in your journey in your life. And Chris, you know that I worship at the altar of Pluto Press and that I, I will forever be grateful for the introduction to my all-time favorite book, Towards a Gay Communism by Mario Miele, oh. which, <laughs> which you'll see I talk about every day on social media. <laughs> I said the other day that I don't think anyone's ever spoken about Mario Miele's Towards a Gay Communism as much as I have. So listeners, if you haven't read that book, I also recommend diving into that alongside Dan's. Well, he was friends with some of the Gay Liberation Front. Yeah. Andrew and them lot. And they, they've got personal stories about him. And if you ever wanted to go on a pilgrimage there then I'm sure they'd have links for you to, to his background in Italy and stuff. Yeah, and he was, um, I met with Scott Branson as well, who's got a Pluto book coming out. Um, yeah, just come out, yeah. Just come out. 
And um, Scott has obviously written uh, or translated these kind of important texts from Guy Ockingham as well, who wrote after May 68. And speaking with Scott and understanding there was also kind of like this interconnectedness and kind of tenuous or stressful, I should say, relationship between Guy Ockingham and Mario Miele as well, um, who were kind of moving across this European radical queer space in the late 60s, early 70s. And I just think it's such an exciting time to be interested in how queer identities and queer movements have come to life and been animated over the past few years, the hurdles we've encountered, the opportunities before us, through the lens of those who are not really understood as part of the kind of overarching Stonewall movement, right? Because Stonewall has become this kind of liberatory lodestar um, for the queer movement. Um, But there was all this incredible work happening in Europe way before Stonewall and all these other political machinations and movements that actually make Stonewall make more sense if we if we understand them. So I'm excited that Pluto is a part of amplifying these works as well. Mm, brilliant. Yeah, no, it's an exciting strand of our list. And uh, yeah, listeners should definitely check out Mario Miele. I normally put together a page, plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading. So I'll definitely pop that and a few other related texts up there for listeners to check out. So let's let's start with another basic question then before we come on to this more interesting stuff that you're already touching on there, Josh. Yeah, Dan, where, where did the idea for Queer Footprints come from? Simple as that. It's rooted back in 2014 in the smoker's corner of the Joiner's Arms pub in Hackney Road. Well, it was there and then it got shut down because of luxury property development, gentrification, etc. that we've been seeing all across London and across the world. And I was pissed off. And we were all busy at the time firefighting lots of closure of queer spaces, Madame Jojo's, the Georgian Dragon, the Black Cap, and then the Joiners. And that was like, done, done, stop, enough. That's where the campaign Friends of the Joiners Arms started, because we were like, we can't let it just be shut down. We went and spoke to the legendary manager, David Pollard, may he rest in power, the next day, and then had the next first meeting to bring back the venue. And it is now an incredibly successful campaign. We're not getting back the original venue, but it's a community-led pub and it's coming back in a different shape very soon. And and so then I went to Gaze the Word to be like, okay, I need to empower myself and inform myself, not just on a kind of reactive level, but really where are we from? And how can we do something which is more integrated rather than just firefighting? Uli was like, you've got to read this book about the Gay Liberation Front, Stuart Feather's book, Blowing the Lid. And that's where the idea for Queer Tours of London and Mince Through Time came from. And we started that in 2016. And really, of course, you see the seven roots that are in Queer Footprints are new roots, which we didn't have in Queer Tours of London before. But essentially, this is an amplification of Queer Tours of London. And then Queer Tours of London led to lots of different other queer campaigns sprouting from there. And... And really, I guess the last thing to say in terms of where the book's from is the vitality of intergenerational activism, of intergenerational wisdom, not just on a very practical, morbid level that our legendary ancestors are going to die. And so we want to get their knowledge and their experience before that. But also, I find it really beautiful and really hopeful that we're not starting from square one. Like you were saying, Josh, way before Stonewall, there's such an incredible toolkit of transformation, both practical, emotional, spiritual, psychological, queer empowerment for centuries. Obviously, the Queer Footprints really just looks at post-sexual offences at 67. But yeah, it's really to like honour the ancestors and to 
harvest their knowledge for the for the future generations. And lastly, my absolute love for London, and that includes not letting any corporations or gentrification or any other powers that be fuck it up. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much passion in the book, but it's also clearly been built on hours and hours of you know research on your part and and the contributions from all of these voices there's so many voices in the book I mean it feels like a an oral history project but much more exciting than that you know in many respects how many people did you actually like speak to or interview as part 164. of 164 164 that's just incredible yeah yeah and the, I really appreciate your questions particularly because they're around the process of the book because mm. I really loved writing it and I could talk more about that. And yeah, so there was 164 live, as in they are alive, contributors to the book, but obviously lots more research and articles from people and movements who are dead. I mean, talking about, you know, the slight morbidity of people dying, obviously last week, Paul O'Grady died. Uh, Lily Savage was, Mm. I suppose for many listeners of a certain age, the first exposure they would have had to the world of drag or, you know, gender fucking in that sense, like... How much of an icon was Lily Savage, like for someone of your age, Dan? I was actually watching Lily Savage on on YouTube last night because Lily Savage was an absolute legend, like hilarious and no bullshit and super smart and like working class hero and really was such a trailblazer, both in terms of drag, but both in terms of challenging power and the financial elite and really laying bare naked oppression in in many forms and really during the 80s and 90s when you know uh, I would say about 40% of the book is around HIV stories and if we're talking about honoring the ancestors like thousands were murdered by the government and we still see millions of people dying across the world because of the same dynamics of pharmaceutical greed and government inaction and and Lily Savage was pioneering like queer defiance at that time when everyone was being killed and it was a real real volatile time and I don't mention Lily enough in the book there's obviously the seven roots but then there's that I think about 25 mini minces short queer power stops at the end and and Royal Vauxhall Tavern is one of them where Lily Savage made the legendary statement when the police invaded the Royal Vauxhall Tavern wearing gloves at the height of the, the AIDS pandemic and said, oh, have you come to do the washing up? Um, just so brilliant in the face of such devastation. And I guess that's one point to make. I'm fully prepared for 99% of London to like be angry at me because I've not talked about their area. You know, I've got enough research for five more books because queers in London and across the world have been around since the dawn of time just by the fact that I only had 70,000 words and I and I chose to do it on a human-centred level rather than just be like in this building this happened or in this street happened on a very kind of cold level I wanted it to be first-person testimony at the heart of it so I have I've cut out Vauxhall I've cut out three tours from Highbury and Islington I've cut out Camden I've cut out Ealing so many like parts which are so important to the queer community so I know people are going to be like how could you cut out Vauxhall so that's why I did the mini minces having like short stops to bring in some of those some of those research case studies and so what was it Dan that helped you distill I see obviously that the book is built upon the queer tours of London but when it comes down to kind of the process and, and plotting out okay these are the seven routes I'm going to focus on what helped you in that distillation process what helped you include Ladbroke Grove over Vauxhall for example 
Great question. Okay, a few reasons. One, I wanted to cover north, south, east and west, but we do have three which are central, Piccadilly, Trafalgar Square and Soho. Then we've got Labrador Grove West, obviously, Brixton South, King's Cross North and Bethnal Green East. Um, so on a geographical level, I wanted to do my best to cover a bit of every corner. On an intersectional level, so obviously I'm the narrator, but every chapter has a guide who's made a significant impact in the area on a different specific issue and on a, from a different cultural background within the LGBTQIA and wider intersectional spectrum. So for example, in Soho, the guide is Josh Heppel, who's a dear friend and a legendary queer activist who works on disability justice. In Trafalgar Square is Andrea, who is an incredible ally, whose husband died of AIDS, was, was murdered um, by the government in action. Um, Brixton, the story is really the unity between the black and the queer and the women's liberation movements. Uh, similarly, in Labrook Grove, in Bethnal Green, the guides are my dear friends Tash and Maz, who are legends and who have set up the Rainbow Tree, which has evolved into the biggest online platform for the Bangladeshi LGBTQI community and obviously Tower Hamlets is 90% Bangladeshi. So that's the second reason on an intersectional level. Also what brings the most humanity and the most hope, I especially wrote the book, not in a kind of, I hate that kind of fake optimistic chat out there. Like, no, no sometimes <laughs> things have been shit. Um, I'm not like polishing a turd. But I wanted the book to be hopeful because actually through writing the book and what you were saying about being enchanted, I was so empowered at the depth and the breadth and the gravity of what our community have done. So when I was doing the recce to really make sure that the roots made practical sense, my brain had so hardwired with the 2000 odd case studies that I'd researched in the 40 different A3 maps that I plotted on my wall that when I was just on the bus, like going to the reccees, my brain was like, oh my God, that building, this meeting happened there or, or that revolutionary happening happened there. We are everywhere. We are everywhere. And I wanted it to be hopeful in that sense because, of course, we've got closure of queer spaces. I mean, I'm not going to list off the injustices that we face, but there's so much to be hopeful about. And I wanted to choose the case studies, which are really inspiring and a real toolkit of how we can take things forward. Yeah, I mean, reading through the book, I suppose there's a few things that recur throughout the chapters, because it's not a, a chronological thing, as you say, it's divided up into these geographical areas. And so there are either pieces of like legislation that sort of recur throughout the text, just because of how significant they were, usually not for the better. But you know, um, so we could talk about the Sexual Offences Act 1967, which you've mentioned already, which is kind of the jumping off point chronologically, although the book does deal with things that preceded that. And there's also section 28, which is another thing that has a profound impact on a huge number of the people about, that you're writing about, as well as yourself personally, I'm sure. And then I suppose there's like the Gay Liberation Front, GLF, and ACT UP, that also kind of recur throughout the pages of the book. Many, many other groups and campaigns as well. Um, they're probably the ones that jumped out to me as being the ones that occur the most. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about the Sexual Offences Act in 1967 firstly? Because like, as you say, that's sort of where you choose to go from. What was that piece of legislation? Um, what did it do and what led to it and, and you know, what happened after it, all of that kind of stuff? 
Yes. The Homosexual Law Reform Society in, in Piccadilly. Now, this was a funny one when, and they were the legends who started the legal process of the Wolfenden Report and pushing the legislation which led to the Sexual Offences Act. Now, I was so lucky to interview Eric Thompson, who died, may he rest in power, I think in December. And actually, even since the, the book's been published, a few of the venues have been shut down um, and Eric's passed on. And see, it shows you of, of the importance of it. Eric, his lifelong partner was Sir Anthony Gray, who was a pioneering LGBT activist who wrote the reports which led to the Sexual Offences Act. So Eric was a civil servant and they lived on what they called Queer Street up in West Hampstead. And the stories they told me of what life was like in the 30s and 40s, like, for example, if they heard a police car, at this time, obviously, it was illegal for queer people to live together, let alone be queer. And if they heard the police, they, they went and ruffled up the, the duvet of the spare bedroom just in case the police came in. And just these examples of what you had to do. And Eric gave such a beautiful quote, which is in the end of the Trafalgar Square chapter, about what life was like in the 30s. And they never thought things were going to get so bad in terms of World War II and the Nazi persecution of queer people, Jews, people of colour, Roma, etc. He writes, and I've quoted that at the end of the Trafalgar Square chapter, that we always have to keep aware and not be complacent. Yes, we should relish and take joy of, out of how far we've progressed, but, but not get complacent. And yeah, so the Homosexual Law Reform Society, when I was doing the recce's, and it's 32 Shaftesbury Avenue, I was like, hang on, I've been here before. And it was my favourite drum and bass club when I was a teenager, Bar Rumba, out on the ground floor. And the Homosexual Law Reform Society was on the top floor. Again, I wanted it, each case study included to be animated, not just like they wrote a report there, but what was it like in the room? What did the room look like? And there I talk about them sitting behind large amounts of papers and the papers were covered with law reports and different newspapers and what they were. How can you bring it to life? And, and like I said, I'm an activist. I'm not a writer by trade. And a huge blessing came into my life when I was writing the book in the form of Sam Arbor, who happened to be my, my housemate in my flat when I was writing the book. And he is currently the director's assistant of Heartstopper. He's only 24 and he's a genius with story writing. And when I was like kicking off about, oh, I hate the police, he was like, well, what were you eating for breakfast before you went to that demonstration which made you hate the police? And I was like, oh, fuck the fascists. And he was like, well, what were the fascists wearing on that demonstration? And really helped me bring it to life rather than just me sitting on my soapbox and just rhetoric, essentially. And to go back to Homosexual Law Reform Society, yeah, with Eric Thompson and other activists from the Gay Liberation Front who were kind of at that overlapping era between the Homosexual Law Reform Society, I talk a bit about their meetings in Caxton Hall in St James's Park, then how that led to the birth of the Gay Liberation Front and, and where that went from there. Mm. I think I'm right in saying that that act led to the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality, right? Yes. So what's the partial in reference to then? Can we also just talk about how we celebrate the partial decriminalisation? <laughs> yeah. It drives me so nuts, but mm. carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, carry on, Josh. You tip in about why, you know, the partial aspect. Well, I just think it's very British, in fact, to accept peanuts and call it a buffet, you know? Because um, I remember I was working at Gay Times when we were celebrating, quote unquote, celebrating 50 years 
and I was doing the marketing and I had to keep correcting our copywriting because it was 50 years since the partial decriminalization of homosexuality. And I just never got over that, that there was this entire song and dance about something only partially being accomplished, only partially being done, uh, that we were only kind of given our rights and that was only under certain conditions. And I, I think about that a lot, that it's so much of what we've learned to aspire to and actually ask for is never what we fully deserve, but is only kind of a piecemeal part of the way there, half of it. And I think that we see examples of that abounding around us now, that British life is clipped and limited by our inability to think and know and understand and work for something bigger than what we have. Mm, mm. please sir can i have some more you know that's it like yeah we we get you know we get I, I wrote about this before that we are the crooks we keep right that there's something else something else draconian slopped into our trough and we just gobble it up as if we can't imagine that we could have something better for ourselves but that every year this happens there's some new fascist abrogation of duty there is some new form or expression of transphobia or anti-LGBT sentiment and whatever kind of little, and this isn't to diminish the work that goes into these little wins, but that we become complacent and happy and satisfied by the absolute minimum that those in power could give us. And we just don't fight as much as we ought to. And I wonder if there's something within Queer Footprints and within these conversations that might help readers, queer and non-queer, understand that there is more for us. Mm -hmm. The irony of the British Empire being the most lethal, brutal colonisers in the world is that actually the British public, I don't want this to sound patronising, but we are the most colonised psychologically in the world. My friend Natombi also wrote a testimonial. Now, Natombi Nyati is one of my biggest inspirations. She was the former director of Training for Transformation, which is where I studied. And it's born out of the popular education movement and particularly the black consciousness movement in the anti-apartheid struggle. And she actually said this when she came to do a education training in London. We did it together a couple of years back. She was like, wow, the British are so colonised in terms of, you know, like you were saying, and asking for the, the crumbs off the table. Obviously, part of the reason why I wrote the book is to talk about how all these incredible movements have tried to smash down the table, let alone ask for breadcrumbs on it, and smash out the cages that we've been put in. But because of the wider dynamic model that we have existed within, within colonisation, we've internalised that. And that relates to the partial decriminalisation. And again, we should not be celebrating partial decriminalisation. Like some of the people that I interviewed in the book who were around at that era, they were like oh, thank you, you've allowed us to cuddle my partner in bed. Thanks so much. But I still have all my rights stripped away from me in the workplace, in healthcare, walking down the street. But on a conceptual level, I kind of break it down into four areas why it's partial. First of all, you have got to look at the discrepancy between LGBTQIA+. And again, I talk a lot about that in the Piccadilly chapter with the huge gulf of rights, let alone liberation for women. You know, what's worse as a gay man being actively beaten up and legislated against or being completely invisibilised as a lesbian? And that's just one example within the LGBTQIA+. 
Second reason is because the age of consent was different to be able to have sex or have relationships between heterosexuals and queer people between 16 and 21. Um, Third reason, which I talk a lot about in the book, and again, this is why I respect Josh and Phil's work so much, not just from a UK Black Pride perspective, but with the Kaleidoscope Trust, in terms of this is an international struggle. If we're looking at the Whitechapel chapter with Bangladesh, for example, that's where I make the connections between the British Empire and Section 377 and how Maz and Tash had to flee their home in Bangladesh because of Section 377, which the British Empire introduced back to London and looking at that cycle of violence and how we can intervene in that. And anyway, in terms of the third reason, we don't have full liberation as queer people across the world because of the empire, because of colonialism, because of the fact that if you're looking at what's just happened in Uganda, uh, which is a direct result in terms of the the recent death penalty introduction, their act is a practical template of the Sexual Offences Act, which the British started. And then my friends who were there are doing incredible work trying to challenge the mentality, oh, we should escape to Britain. It's like, no, if, if you don't die in a boat in the channel, you'll get locked up in a detention centre and then be flown back to Rwanda. It's like, no, it's not. We've got to challenge this dependency cycle on the British Empire, which started the problem. So that's the third reason in terms of an international perspective. And the fourth reason why it's partial is that we still don't have full freedoms for any member of the LGBTQIA community. I mean, look what's happening in terms of the huge attacks on our trans siblings at the moment and with the rise of hate crime attacks, etc. So these are reasons why it's all partial. That sounds quite bleak. And we have made so much incredible progress since the Sexual Offences Act. And, and part of the reason for doing Queer Footprints is to kind of to shape that, to put that into a container, being like, look at everything that's achieved. What do we still need to do? This book... I want it to be a toolkit, even a curriculum for the movement and how we can continue shaping our realities. We're often accused of being bleak when we outline exactly how much is still left to be done and exactly why something is not good enough. And I think that it's important for us to say that something isn't good enough. I remember I had a conversation actually on Busy Being Black with PJ Samuels and they say that, you know, my parents' best might not have been good enough for me, and that's okay. And I think this applies to our elders and our ancestors, and as well as our age mates in this movement as well. It's okay for us to want more and for us to be dissatisfied with the progress that we have, because I actually think that we are kind of cajoled into accepting these crumbs into not smashing the table to pieces, because those in power are saying you should be grateful for what you have. Um, And if I may, I think there's a word that we have to actually say in this space that we're kind of talking around, but it's geography. I think that word becomes very important. We learned from Ruth Wilson Gilmore, for example, to understand the kind of carceral logics of the societies in which we live through the terminology and an understanding of geography. Um, And so I wonder if Queer Footprints helps us place our movements and our intersectionality geographically as well. What, what can we learn, Dan, from a geographic approach to LGBTQ human rights that might help us continue to organize in the future? Now and in the future, I should say. Yeah, such, such a beautiful question. My friend Phil, who's an incredible activist with Beautiful Trouble, his testimony made me, his endorsement for the book made me laugh out loud because he was like, queer footprints is a queer cartographer's wet dream. And for me, it is about reclaiming 
not just our heritage, but reclaiming our spaces, our cities. Matt Cook has just written a book about queer history beyond London. And so there's some, you know, it's not just London, there's lessons to be learned from queer cartography and geography everywhere. So in terms of your question, Josh, again, what I say, every building, every street has a story of liberation. It depends how far we're scratching beneath the surface. And if we look just at, even in the last few years, at the gravity of, of all these shiny buildings and the, and, the, and the turbo capitalism, essentially, so easy to get depressed by that. But we can fill our tanks by knowing that we have created change at that very place, just beneath the pavement cracks. Like, to give a few examples, one of my favourite stomping grounds was Ghetto um, in Falkenberg Court, round the back of Tottenham Court Road Station. Obviously, that's the Lizzie line now. Oh, my God. I was there at uni. Oh, <laughs> at Falkenberg yeah. Court. <laughs> yeah, 2000 and, 2006, I was at London yeah. College of Fashion, and we went to Ghetto all the yeah. time. Oh, my God, it was sweaty and dank and yeah. claustrophobic, I remember. Yeah. Oh, I love that place. And if that alleyway out the front of it could talk, oh, my days, they've got stories. Obviously, everyone had a great time in the club, and then everyone, sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the alleyway. And we've got a relish on the naughtiness, on the courageousness, on the love and the sex and the ability for our community to always live between the cracks. Yeah, so that's one example. Another example... Well, and if I may, I'm just going to focus this a little bit, Dan. So take Brixton, for example. Yeah. What does an analysis and exploration of Brixton and the movements that erupted in Brixton and helped shape Brixton teach us about what we're missing in an overall movement for LGBTQ liberation? Brixton, oh my days. In the Brixton chapter, it's literally just one street. There's so much that's happened in Brixton. There's so much depth from practically every building. Railton Road, there's a few examples from Mail Road, which is parallel. And I think what we can learn from what can happen in just one street on a geographical level is the connections on a holistic level, which leads to freedom. It's not just being able to march on pride, but all the fundamental needs that we need to be fully alive and happy as human beings, to have our needs for water, shelter, energy, protection, identity met so that we can exist before we can expect to be in happy, healthy, romantic relationships. We need to have a home over our head. And Brixton, one of the many things that they are still going is the black queer housing projects, the black queer communes, which still exist. And I'm very jealous because I'd like to have a home. And um, in terms of like a queer housing project and housing being one example that has led to the long-term benefits and well-being of our community, which are still there, is just one thing to learn. And there's an exhibition on the wall of Railton Road still now because it's such an incredibly transformative street. So it's such an illuminating exhibition, both on radical black power journalism to queer black housing projects, to the Brixton Fairies, the radical theatre group, to the South London Lesbian and Gay Centre. Every building there is incredible. I can actually remember the first time that I made the connection between like a mainstream pinkwashing and pride and its importance in cleansing and clearing out a physical space. We were in New York a few years ago. Lady Phil was the international grand marshal for New York City Pride. And we were actually there for a week before the pride celebration. 
And so we were kind of exploring all different parts of, of New York. And one of the things I noticed on my kind of walkabouts of the city was how much homelessness there was everywhere. And it was just so usual and usualized. And then we were on the day of the march, I was walking alongside Phil's car. So she's kind of propped up on the back of this BMW or whatever. And she's in this long procession, this long pride procession. And I'm walking along and I'm like, wait a minute, where are all the homeless people? Where are the people who live on the streets, right? Whose home is the street and, and who have survived on these streets? They're brushed out of the way, right? So that these rainbow flags can be draped everywhere so that these cars can proceed, you know, quote unquote, unbothered down the street. And so someone's home is literally transformed in such a way that it's made, quote unquote, clean, quote unquote, safe um, for LGBTQ people to have this, quote unquote, pride celebration. And I also realized in that moment that queer homeless people are being erased as part of these mainstream pride celebrations. Questions about housing and public safety are obscured during these mainstream pride celebrations because the thrust of it is to demonstrate that whatever city this pride celebration has taken place in has become already this safe haven, this safe space for queerness and queer people. And we see this in the UK as well, that there's this huge pride celebration that takes place through central London and no conversation attends this pride celebration about a rise in anti-LGBTQ hate crime, about the important work of Albert Kennedy Trust in tackling LGBTQ homelessness, about the work of Micro Rainbow and um, providing safe housing and safe spaces and spaces of belonging for LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers. And so I think that Queer Foot you know, reading this book is also a really incredible way for people to understand that the different issues that will invariably emerge across the seven routes, they are interconnected, but they also offer us a window into understanding how these issues or how communities are organizing around certain issues that might not necessarily be understood as quote unquote queer issues, as it were. And I, I think there's something really powerful in that as well. I mean, you know, I'd like to talk a bit more about place and space because all of these events that you're talking about all of these movements exist in a place and in a space so firstly you know it'd be a mistake for anyone who sees the book out and about in bookshops to assume that this is a book about you know lgbtqia plus history and that that history is like its own thing in a silo because you know one thing that comes through in the book immediately and throughout is the fact that queer struggle has never been isolated from other struggles, right? You know, so there's always this cross-pollination, intersectionality, you know, intermovement solidarity that is taking place. Talking about place again, you know, you write, I think, in the the Ladbroke Grove chapter about Notting Hill, you know, that nothing scares the police more than oppressed people organising together, demanding their freedom. And yeah, this kind of work has to take place somewhere. Places like the Mangrove, right, in Notting Hill, that's like a place where these movements come together. Are there any other places like that of significance where you see this? Yeah, these intersecting struggles, I suppose. Hugely. Mm. I mean, should we explain a bit about the mangrove? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, first of all, for anyone wanting to know more, just watch Steve McQueen's um, Uprising series. It's so beautiful. Um, And the mangrove was an incredible restaurant, which was the hub of the movement the Black Power Movement, the British Black Panthers. In the 70s, 
But to give one example of the intersections, so the Gay Liberation Front, who had some of their most iconic, hilarious squats communes in Notting Hill, were active in the women's liberation movement, trans rights movement, trade union struggles. But, you know, the Mangrove, when the nine defendants were in court, which led to pioneering legislation about self-defence, and they were arrested by the white supremacist police state and were put on trial. And, you know, the Mangrove defendants and the wider Mangrove support community, well, some of them helped support the first Prides. And the GLF activists who started Pride was in support of the Mangrove Nine struggle, the Mangrove Nine defendants. That's one of my favourite crossovers. Another is, you know, some of the powerful lesbian movements in Brixton, which a lot of them have been immortalised in the incredible film Rebel Dykes. You know, they had their lesbian communes, their dyke communes, their dyke creches in Brixton, which supported some of the incredible people and activists who were resisting as part of the Brixton uprisings in 81, 85, and helped the injured in their squats. I actively made myself cry every morning for the last like three months of the book process. And I had to make myself cry because I really wanted to get into the deep travesty of what has been done to our community. And this sounds like I'm just putting it on, but you have to send yourself into a really deep place. So I watched um, the baked bean scene in I, Daniel Blake. I watched the scene in Pride, the singing of Bread and Roses and various other, oh my God, heartbreaking, incredible films. Because the bit in King's Cross chapter, which still makes me cry every time I read it, again, a lot of that's around HIV and AIDS, is Mark Ashton and Mike Jackson from Lesbian and Gay Support the Minors, immortalised in the film Pride, and they're the guides in the King's Cross chapter. Um, we all know Mark Ashton was murdered, but hopefully you don't realise that till the end of the King's Cross chapter, because you're with him the whole time, and then he's not there. And so in King's Cross, places which were real crossover, iconic examples of intersectionality was lesbian and gay support the minors. Like that queer liberation is a class struggle, is trade union solidarity, just as the mangrove is queer and black crossover in Brixton with the dyke squats. It is women's dyke, black power, queer crossover. And in Soho, just in the very reason why Josh can't get into the bars because they're not accessible, which they fucking should be. The streets is where, Old Compton Street is where Josh and other queer disability pioneers have to form their movements. Mm. I hope that's some examples. There's plenty more. Yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. So one thing that comes through in the book quite clearly when you're talking about HIV AIDS activism, when you're talking about ACT UP is that a lot of people, you know, you describe it as people being murdered by the state. I mean, you just mentioned Mark Ashton there. And I think there's a line in the book as well where you say, you know, you used to assume that the state sort of came up with the treatments for HIV AIDS and sort of that was because of them rather than because of these movements pushing, pushing constantly over these years. Could you say a bit more about some of that stuff that comes through the book? Because it's, it's obviously heartbreaking, but it's extremely powerful as well. I mean, again, this relates to Sam's work, incredible work with Heartstopper. I'm a Section 28 baby. I literally started school the year Section 28, the law that Thatcher, may she not rest in peace, introduced the legislation which banned the promotion of homosexuality in public institutions from 1988 to 2003. I started school when I was five, as you do, in 88, and I finished college in 2003, so the exact the period that I was living under that oppressive culture of silence. 
So really, the kind of key questions for me which guided this process, and I'll, I'll come back to the to the why we need to not be timid when it comes to fighting and demanding our liberation. The key questions which really like stoked my soul fire during the whole book is reclaiming our heritage. Like I was pissed off. The book is a revenge book for what has been stolen from us. And how do we speak our realities? How do we cherish the fact that we're the ones that we've been waiting for? We don't need someone who's on a £250,000 salary at the top of some public policy institution or charity to tell us about our realities. We can speak our own realities. How do we build a movement on every level in terms of our stolen heritage, our stolen communities, our stolen livelihoods, colonialism, Section 28, transphobia, etc.? How do we meet our needs? How do we become fully visible? And ultimately... How do we, like Josh was saying, not just ask for a bit here and there, but how do we become fully alive? And that is the question which I've learned from, again, people like Natombi, who are pioneers from the anti-apartheid struggle, from the black consciousness movement. You know, that's all related to the work of like Max Neef and the fundamental will of human needs and Palafreri and popular education, etc. So really, in terms of I was diagnosed HIV positive when I was 21. Um, I didn't have a Scooby-Doo about it. My main frame of reference was my beloved Mark Fowler and EastEnders. And that was my main frame of reference when I was a kid. Obviously, then there was Queer as Folk. Thank you, Russell T. Davis. And then the other main frame of reference was the AIDS tombstones, uh, the fear-mongering AIDS tombstones on the telly. So the bit in the Trafalgar Square chapter, so Terence Higgins... And I didn't know about the, the origins of Terence Higgins, which I think is the biggest HIV and AIDS charity in Britain. I didn't know much about Terence Higgins. And obviously a lot of people don't equate the nightclub heaven with radical movement building. You know, it's very mainstream, but that is where the Terence Higgins Trust started. That's where Stonewall used to have their early meetings. It was such an incredible support for the, in the early days of the pandemic. Terence Higgins, Terry Higgins was a barman at the bar and he fainted when he was working at the bar. And I tried to animate that. Oh, Rupert Whittaker, who was his partner, who's still an incredible HIV activist and scientist, I think, who helped start the Terence Higgins Trust after he died. And, and, you know, I didn't know about Terence Higgins. And I didn't know about then, you know, you walk up uh, Villiers Street and then the Charing Cross Police Station where outrage, the incredible movement in the 80s and 90s, whose activists were living and dying with HIV at the time, but were fighting against the different age of consent and fighting against police attacks around cruising and cottaging and so many other things, to then the ACT UP dines in Trafalgar Square and speaking to people like Andrea, who was, oh my days. We did um, another die-in just on last World AIDS Day in 2022, and she was there 30 years before with her partner who died, who was killed, because of the lack of support by the government. And, you know, she talks about how this is not some kind of performance. My actual lifelong partner was sitting, lying on the floor next to me, demanding, demanding attention by the government. And now, 30 years later, she's still activist. She's still leading the movement, but her partner's not there. The actual Houses of Parliament are just a bit too far away for the reader to walk. So I then ask, after heaven, the Stop Heaven, to go back through Embankment Station and just look to your right and look at the Houses of Parliament. But that's where Angela Eagle, you know, cried in, oh my God, when you just look at the footage of her crying in Parliament to challenge all the latest legislation, which is potentially forcing us back into the closet, both the attacks on the trans community, 
but also on rolling back the, the progressions that we've made for LGBTQIA plus education. So back to what I was saying, I've got a lot of pent-up rage and desire to reclaim my heritage because of Section 28. You know, I, all of this makes me think of grief. I had a conversation on Busy Being Black with Dagmawi Wubshet, who has this really tremendous book called The Calendar of Loss. And in The Calendar of Loss, he is tracing the routes and stories and interventions of predominantly queer, black and brown creatives, interventionists, scholars, writers um, during the AIDS crisis, who he names disprised mourners those whose grief and whose mourning um, was not recognized by the state, particularly as it relates to governmental neglect in the face of HIV AIDS. And one of the examples um, Doug Mawi uses to open the book is the political funeral of ACT UP Mary Tim Bailey, who on his deathbed asked his friends and ACT UP comrades to throw his body over uh, the White House gates and onto the White House lawn in order to call attention to the AIDS dying and the AIDS dead. But his book is a meditation on grief and how those of us confronted with systemic injustices, with systemic erasure, with governmental neglect, with death, don't just sit back and let that neglect and that erasure happen, but actually metabolize that grief in kind of very public demonstrations of grief in order to call attention to the injustice, right? To, to show the humanity. And I hear a lot of that in Queer Footprints too, right? That people will be walking these routes and will be confronted with, this, with the stories of neglect, erasure, of AIDS, death, and dying. And need to find a way to be able to encounter and hold that grief as well, right? Because I think it's also a grief, if I'm not too presumptuous, that also animates a lot of our civic life together now, right? That as queer people, you know, coming out of, if you will, in a sense, the COVID-19 pandemic or readjusting to this quote-unquote new normal haven't necessarily metabolized the grief that we've experienced from this um, protracted period of loss which i think compounds with a kind of unaddressed and enduring grief from everything we lost and all the people will never know from the aids crisis and so i think that queer footprints is another example if we put dan in conversation with mario mielli and guy ockingham and scott branson it puts Dan and Queer Footprints in conversation with all of these other activists, movements, authors, books, all these other attempts to get us to confront and metabolize this grief towards some sort of collective action. So my question for you, Dan, is how have you made space for and encountered your own grief as part of this research and writing process? Oh, Josh, you nailed it when you when you really like focus on the on the metabolism of grief and the alchemy of grief. For me, grief has always been my main driving emotion, and I'll explain why, both in my activism and in my writing. And I guess a lot of people would associate grief as a negative thing, but for me, in a really cheesy statement, is turning a trauma into transformation, how grief can be a driving force for movements, for people's humanity, for social change. And, you know, I am not black. I am a white queer Jew who grew up in North East London, but my grandparents were Holocaust survivors which came to Brick Lane. And this is obviously why I included Brick Lane because it's so close to my heart. Like, 
after the Huguenots, then there was the Jewish community, and now it's the predominantly the Bangladeshi community, an incredible area for multiracialism, multiculturalism. And, you know, it comes as no surprise that grief is the driving force for me because my heritage like, is dripping in blood. All my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. The rest of my extended family, I'm still trying to find out what happened to them. Obviously, the book is about London, but I'm not rich, so I couldn't afford to write it in London. And so I hid away in Berlin. But whilst I was doing the writing, I could only be in Berlin legally because I've also thankfully just got my um, dual German heritage because my grandparents, two of them were German Holocaust survivors, two Polish. And I've been on like a seven year process to get my citizenship back. And Berlin for me, I live two streets away at the moment from the Jewish Museum. This place makes me cry just walking around the streets because reading my granddad's war diaries, you know, when he was... 14, my great-grandparents used to run a um, tobacco business and he used to cycle around town distributing fags to all the cabaret spaces in the, in the Weimar era. And in his diaries, he talks about literally in 38, seeing the Reichstag on fire. So it comes as no surprise that coming from an oppressed background, not just gay, but Jewish, that I am such a fan of UK Black Pride's work in terms of leading by the most oppressed and seeing the bigger picture of how we reclaim our heritage and build deep, deep power through harnessing our grief because of colonialism, because of genocide, etc. You know what I also found out? To get my citizenship, I had to go back to the records office and I, li I literally found my nan's war diaries of when she was hiding in a cupboard in, in Holland. I found out what happened to her sister who died in Auschwitz Found out loads of things, you know. It was a question for me and my biological family. How did she survive? She was 14, but she was there for 20 months. And now that's still an unanswered question because normally kids or old people get sent straight to the gas chambers. We still don't know. But we found out it was 20 months when I went back to the archive. On my Polish side, oh my God, I have to laugh because it's just whatever. I found out my granddad's family were from Oswinchem, which is Auschwitz, the town of Auschwitz. So Auschwitz is obviously known for the camp, but it, there's a town next to it. And obviously him and his family were like, in the 30s, they were like, something's going on, we have to get out of it. So the fact that my DNA is directly connected to Auschwitz, not just where my, many of my family perished, but where I'm actually from, there's no wonder that grief fuels me. And, you know, as a kid, when I heard from my grandparents, often Holocaust survivors and any war or genocide or big traumatic incident survivors speak to their grandkids before they speak to their kids because they try and protect their kids. So me and my sister heard my Polish nan and her story first before my biological mum and dad. And all I heard about as a kid was the Holocaust. But I never heard what happened to the, to the queer community, to people of colour, to the Roma Sinti, to the activists, because there's a hierarchy in how history is told. In this case, it's, the concept is literally called the Holocaust hierarchy. The Jews, yes, were killed in biggest numbers. But for me, that doesn't matter. Like every life is sacred. And we have to unpack how it happened, not just it happened, but how did such an act happen um, so that we can truly stop it happening again? And again, those lessons are applicable to the HIV and AIDS genocide, which is still impacting millions of people across the world, to the slaughter and the death penalties that's being introduced on our queer siblings 
in various different places across the world to the assault on the trans community in Britain. So really grief and how we turn that into something beautiful and powerful and not rest in victimhood. Now that's something I learned from my heritage. I understand, I understand that various people in my biological heritage kind of rest in victimhood because it's easy to get stuck in there, but guilt is the most unproductive emotion. Survivor's guilt is the most unproductive emotion. I understand it, but it doesn't lead us to action. And the point is, grief can lead to action. It's an um, expansive emotion, not a closed emotion. Mm. Toni Morrison uh, said that grief is self-indulgent. And I, I love this, this idea that grief is an animating and energizing force, because I think in the... In the public emotional imagination, alongside the fact that we tend to view emotions as singular uh, phenomena, like I'm either angry or I am happy, I am sad or I am joyful, instead of emotions kind of being complicated, messy constructions in and of themselves, I think that we kind of view grief as like a stage, that we grieve and then we move past that grief. But I think what I'm learning, particularly from queer activists, and, and queer black and queer trans activists is as you've just laid out is that grief animates right it's this thing that can keep us going and that can energize and i learned somewhere else that we never really get over loss that it's a myth to think that we get closure but actually what we do is we expand to accommodate the loss so mm. in grief we become bigger right we become emotionally bigger we become more emotionally resilient um because we have to grow around the loss in order to accommodate it the loss doesn't become smaller we become bigger and so mm. i love this idea that that we can utilize this grief in really powerful ways because we grow as a result of it oh when are you gonna write a book babe oh my god that's so beautifully put that's yeah. that's i really hope you are that's so beautifully put and i guess that first of all makes me think about the cover design. And we always say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but just look at the cover. I'm That's so amazing. happy about the cover. And Josh and Phil and me were going back and forwards about which picture of Phil on the front cover. And thank you, Chris, and thank you everyone at Pluto, not just for supporting the whole process, but the cover. Um, it is, dear readers, hot pink and gold, and not just bland gold. How do you word it, Chris? It's, 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 called... a, it's a gold foiling on the River Thames. Oh, it is gorgeous. The, Which yeah. is the nicest the Thames has ever looked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's further stories behind why them colours, right? Obviously, so the two pictures on the front cover of the book is obviously Phil, because not just because Phil's an in incredible person, personally, I wanted to platform and as you say, just at the beginning, UK Black Pride is now the biggest queer black festival um, in the world. The biggest free black pride celebration in the world. Ugh, amazing. UK Black Pride is the most powerful movement on the scale that it is in Britain. And so I obviously wanted Phil to be on there. And then the other photo is the kissing. There was two in 90 and 92 at the Statue of Eros in Piccadilly Circus to protest against police entrapment. So they're the two pictures, but let me talk about the colors. I love pink and I love gold, but there's deeper meaning behind it. Pink because where ACT UP's triangle came from is an inverted symbol of the queer people who perished in the camps. And that's why it's pink because I wrote this in Berlin. That's where my heritage is from. If we're looking at digging deeper and looking at the genealogy of movements and the genealogy of activism and how grief feeds movements and movements beyond that, Behind ACT UP was the symbology from the Nazi Holocaust. 
And, you know, I've kind of had a few kind of little bits of time to think about what I want to next write about. And again, there hasn't been enough written about the stories and the people who, the queer community who perished in the camps, but also who resisted. On my hip, I've got a tattoo of one of my icons, Arondis Wilhelm, who was a Dutch queer anti-fascist fighter who was killed by the Nazis in 1943. He blew up a records office somewhere in Holland because he knew the Nazis were going to go into it and find thousands of people's addresses, queer, black, activists, Jewish, etc. Maybe even many of my biological family. He blew it up, therefore saving potentially thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. He was caught by the Nazis and last thing he said before he was executed was, let it be known that homosexuals are not cowards. So for me, the, the pink is that strength, that courage of resistance and, and grief. And the gold, because for me, the Thames, bless David Shulman, my commissioning editor at Pluto, he had to put up with so much of me going off on one. There was this whole bit, I might have sent this to you, Josh. In the intro, I went off on a queer Finding Nemo analogy for like five pages. Went on this whole bit about me jumping into the Thames and finding all these queer fishes and, and these items from like love letters from the 40s in a, in a bottle or rags which were from outfits from the 30s or whatever. And David was like, I think you just need to stop. Um, but I, I'm gonna use that for something else. It, particularly in London, because it's such an intense city and brilliant city, but it's so intense. We all need things which ground us. Um, and for me, I need water. And this sounds hippie, and I, we all got a hippie inside of us. I need water to calm me down. Obviously, I'm coming back for all the book tours in London, and I'm trying to live as close to the Thames, because if I don't have my runs by the Thames in the morning, and I have this little place just by Shadwell Basin where I sit and contemplate just for 10 minutes before the day starts, the water of the Thames, and not just how the water of the Thames has always been running through our city, through all these changes, through all these movements. And it doesn't give a shit about, and this is what you were saying at the beginning, Josh, the power of the ecology of our cities, how that also is such a bigger factor and ultimately will override humans because of all the damage we're doing. Anyway, it's gold because for me, the Thames has so much spiritual significance and grounding in our city and personally for me to be able to be an activist and keep my mental health. Also, just a fun fact, the statue at Trafalgar Square isn't Eros, it's Antiros. Aha! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter Dizakis, yes. Yeah, it's Antiros, his, his sibling. I'd like us to talk briefly about some of the stuff that's happening this year, both in terms of the book and also in terms of UK Black Pride. So, um, Josh, tell us a little bit about what UK Black Pride is doing this year, because it's 18 years old, right, this year? Mm, that's right. Yeah, big anniversary. So UK Black Pride... Yeah, it turns 18 this year. And one of the things that we're exploring this year is legacy and how we ensure that the space that UK Black Pride has convened for the past 18 years lives beyond whatever form UK Black Pride takes. It just so happens that in 2022, we became the world's largest free, free Black Pride celebration when 25,000 people convened in Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park in Stratford for our annual celebration. And Phil has always been very adamant that UK Black Pride should be understood as kind of just one moment, one space, one offering 
among many within our communities that seek to provide shelter, safe haven, and celebratory space um, for our communities. So one of the ways that we are encountering this idea of legacy and trying to make legacy real, which I think connects really beautifully to Dan's book and the movements that he talks about and the routes he traces in the book is we've launched our community action fund. So in 2021, we did a survey across our community to find out how our communities were faring after COVID-19, what kind of resources they needed, what were their mental health and physical health barriers, and where were they finding joy? What was making them happy and and making them smile and, and enchanting them, if you will? And so we got these findings and thought we have to do something with them. Like it's one thing to kind of get all this information and just you got to do something with it. So we launched the Community Action Fund. So, so far with the Community Action Fund, we've been able to distribute almost 80,000 pounds to 10 organizations across the UK who are working to address some of the more enduring and thematic issues that um, our communities raised during that first survey. And so we're thinking about now, how does the Community Action Fund continue to grow and address some of those concerns? Because UK Black Pride has never said it was the only way to, the only solution to this kind of enduring and and systemic issue, but we do have power uh, within UK Black Pride to do something meaningful and long lasting. And and part of that is a kind of a redistribution of resources. Um, So we're very proud of that and we're hoping to continue growing that. Um, And our event is still in the planning stages, of course, it's only April at the time of this recording. And so we're excited to do something bigger and better in in celebration of that of that 18 years. Yeah, fantastic. It's it's really an honor to work with Dan and Phil to include Lady Phil on the cover of Queer Footprints and to have UK Black Pride's work and space included within Queer Footprints. Because I think we have to remember that in 2004, when Lady Phil and a busload of black lesbians went down to Southend-on-Sea for the first time to come together for what became UK Black Pride, it was in a very hostile environment, right? Like not dissimilar from the one that we're living through now. Phil often talks about the National Front marching through the streets and the kind of overt anti-black racism that she and so many other queer black people were experiencing from within inside the LGBTQ um, communities. And when they decided to create a UK Black Pride, there was an emphatic no from mainstream pride organizations in London and across the UK. We will not help you do this. There will never be a black pride. And so that were 18 years this year and that this space has continued to grow in significance and impact and that we're included in Queer Footprints means a great deal because Phil and the team at UK Black Pride have been doing this work over the course of 18 years without fanfare, without spectacle, without mainstream support because it was necessary or as Phil says, because her conscience wouldn't allow her to do something else. Um, so it means a lot to be in, for me to be involved in something as important and meaningful as, as UK Black Pride and to, for UK Black Pride to be in conversation with Dan and the other incredible movements and places in Queer Footprints. And of course, we're doing work together with Busy Being Black and Queer Footprints as well. Mm-hmm. We're doing a, a three-episode special, um, tracing three different routes. So we'll be speaking with activists included in the book as we trace routes through East London, through Bethnal Green, Brixton, and Ladbroke Grove. Um, and so we're very excited about that. I'm so excited. Yeah. No, that'd be brilliant. Be very I can't cool. wait to listen to that when that comes out. 
I think that's a nice note to end on. There, there's so much that we almost discussed and didn't, but that's fine. I'm hoping maybe in those three episodes you're going to record with Josh, some of that mm. stuff will come up then. So yeah, definitely go and check out Busy Being Black at some point when these episodes air. And just anyway, because it's fantastic and an award-winning podcast. Thank you both so much for your time. It's been a real, real pleasure. So This has been such a delight. Thank you. That was Dan Glass and Josh Rivers on Radicals and Conversation. Queer Footprints is out now, and listeners can get 40% off with the coupon podcast. Just head over to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading to find out more. We've got some exciting stuff coming through the podcast in the next few weeks. Uh, In June 2023, we'll be releasing our final two episodes of the Locating Legacy series, which is co-produced by Pluto Press and the Stuart Hall Foundation, in which Gracie Mae Bradley will be in conversation with Sita Balani and then Ruth Wilson-Gilmore. And we have new Radicals in Conversation in-house episodes recorded on location in Bookhouse in Bristol. These feature Hill Aked talking about their new book, Friends of Israel, David Broder discussing Mussolini's grandchildren, and Sarah Shin on Space Crone, a new collection of Ursula Le Guin's writings on feminism and gender. So do stay tuned for all of that. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>